Chapter Four of the Czar's Spy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Czar's Spy by William Lequeux. Chapter Four, in which the mystery increases. Neither of us spoke. Equally surprised at the unexpected encounter, we stood facing each other, dumbfounded. Hornby started quickly as soon as his eyes fell upon me, and his face became blanched to the lips, while Muriel Lithcourt, quick to notice the sudden change in him, rose and introduced us in as calm a voice as she could command. "'I don't think you are acquainted,' she said to me with a smile. "'This is Mr. Martin Woodruff, Mr. Gordon Gregg.' I bowed to him in sudden resolve to remain silent in pretense that I doubted whether the man before me was actually my host of the Lola. I intended to act as though I was not sufficiently convinced to openly express my doubt. Therefore we bowed, exchanging greetings as strangers, while carefully watching I saw how greatly the minds of both were relieved. They shot meaning glances at each other, and then, as though reassured that I was mystified and uncertain, the man who called himself Woodruff explained to my companion, "'I've been over to Newton Stewart with Fred all day, and only got back a quarter of an hour ago. Aren't you playing any more today?' "'I think not,' was her reply. "'We've been out there the whole afternoon, and I'm rather tired. But they're still on the lawn. You can surely get a game with someone.' If you don't play, I shan't. I returned to keep the promise I made this morning, he laughed, standing before the big open fireplace holding his tennis racket behind his back. I examined his countenance and was more than ever convinced that he was actually the man who gave me the name of Hornby and the false address in Somerset. The pair seemed to be on familiar terms, and I wondered whether they were engaged. In any case, the man seemed quite at home there. As he chatted with the daughter of the house he cast a quick covert glance at me, and then darted a meaning look at her, a look of renewed confidence, as though he felt that he had successfully averted any suspicions I might have had. We talked of the prospects of the grouse and the salmon, and from his remarks he seemed to be as keen at sport as he had once made out himself to be at yachting. My friend Lithcourt is awfully fortunate in getting such a splendid old place as this. On every hand I hear glowing accounts of the number of birds. The place has been well preserved in the past, and there's plenty of good cover. Yes, said I. Gilray, the owner, is a keen sportsman, and before he became so hard up he spent a lot of money on the estate, which I believe has always been considered one of the very best in the southwest. There's salmon, they say, down in the glen yonder, but I've never tried for any. Certainly there is. I've seen several. I hope to try one of these days. The glen is deep and shady, an ideal place for fish. The only disappointment here, as far as I can make out, is the very few head of black game. Yes, but every year they are getting rarer and rarer in this part of Scotland. A really fine black cock is quite an event nowadays, I said. While we were talking, or rather while I was carefully watching the rapid working of his mind, Lithcourt himself entered and joined us. He had been playing tennis and had come in to rest and cool. Host and guest were evidently on the most intimate terms. 
Lythcourt addressed him as Martin, and began to relate a quarrel which his head gamekeeper had had that day with one of the small farmers on the estate regarding the killing of some rabbits. And while they were talking Muriel suggested that we should stroll down to the tennis courts again, an invitation which, much as I regretted leaving the two men, I was bound to accept. It seemed as though she wished purposely to take me away from that man's presence, fearing that by remaining there longer my suspicions might become confirmed. She was acting in conjunction with the man whom I had known as Hornby. There were still a good many people watching the game, for it was pleasant in those old-world gardens in the sunset hour. The dried-up moat was now transformed into a garden filled with rhododendrons and bright azaleas, while the high ancient beech hedges the quaint old sundial with its motto, Each time ye shadow turneth, ye is one day nearer unto death. And the old stone balustrades, gray with lichen, all spoke mutely of those glorious days when the fierce horsemen of Lairds of Rannoch were feared across the border, and when many a prisoner of the Black Douglas had pined and died in those narrow stone chambers in the grim north tower that still stood high above. Among the parties strolling and lounging there prior to departure were quite a number of people I knew, people who had shooting-boxes in the vicinity and were my uncle's friends. In Scotland there is always a hearty hospitality among the sporting folk, and the laws of caste are far less rigorous than they are in England. I was standing chatting with two ladies who were about to take leave of their hostess when Lythcourt returned, but alone. Hornby had not accompanied him. Was it because he feared to again meet me? In order to ascertain something regarding the man who had so mysteriously fled from Leghorn, I managed by the exercise of a little diplomacy to sit on the lawn with a young married woman named Tennant, wife of a cavalry captain, who was one of the house-party. After a little time I succeeded in turning the conversation to her fellow-guests, and more particularly to the man I knew as Hornby. "'Oh, Mr. Woodruff is most amusing,' declared the bright little woman. "'He's always playing some practical joke or other. After dinner he is usually the life and soul of our party.' "'Yes,' I said. "'I like what little I have seen of him. He's a very good fellow, I should say. I heard that he's engaged to Muriel,' I hazarded. "'Is that true?' "'Of course. They've been engaged nearly a year.' but he's been abroad until quite lately. He is rather close about his own affairs, and never talks about his travels and adventures, although one day Mr. Lythcourt declared that his hairbreadth escapes would make a most exciting book if ever written. Lythcourt and he are evidently most intimate friends. Oh, quite inseparable, she laughed. And the other fellow who is always with them is that short, stout, red-faced old fellow standing over there, with the lady in pale blue, Sir Ugtref Gardner. Mr. Woodruff has nicknamed him Sir Putrid, and we both laughed. Of course, don't say I said so, she whispered. They don't call him that to his face, but it's so easy to make a mistake in his name when he's not within hearing. We women don't care for him, so the nickname just fits. And she gossiped on, telling me much that I desired to know regarding the new tenant of Rannoch and his friends, and more especially of that man who had first introduced himself to me in the consulate at Leghorn. 
Half an hour later my uncle's carriage was announced, and I left with the distinct impression that there was some deep mystery surrounding the Leithcourts. What it was, however, I could not for the life of me make out. Perhaps it was Philip Leithcourt's intimate relation with the man who had so cleverly deceived me that incited my curiosity concerning him. Perhaps it was that mysterious intuition, that curious presage of evil that sometimes comes to a man as warning of impending peril. Whatever the reason, I had become filled with grave apprehensions. The mystery grew deeper day by day and was inexplicable. During the week that followed I sought to learn all I could regarding the new people at the castle. They are taken up everywhere, declared my aunt when I questioned her. Of course we knew very little of them except that they had a shoot-up near Fort William two years ago, and that they have a townhouse in Green Street. They are evidently rather smart folks, don't you think so? Judging from their house-party, yes, I responded. They are about as gay a crowd as one could find north of Carlisle just at present. Exactly. There are some well-known people among them, too, said my aunt. I've asked them over tomorrow afternoon, and they've accepted. Excellent, I exclaimed, for I wanted an opportunity for another chat with the dark-eyed girl who was engaged to the man whose alias was Hornby. I particularly desired to ascertain the reason of her fear when I had mentioned the Lola, and whether she possessed any knowledge of Hilton Chatter. The opportunity came to me in due course, for next afternoon the Rannoch party drove over in two large breaks, and with other people from the neighborhood and a band from Dumfries my aunt's grounds presented a gay and animated scene. There was a usual tennis and croquet, while some of the men enjoyed a little putting on the excellent course my uncle, a golf enthusiast, had recently laid down. As I expected, Woodruff did not accompany the party. Mrs. Lithcourt, a slightly fussy little woman, apologized for his absence, explaining that he had been recalled to London suddenly a few days before, but was returning to Rannoch again at the end of the week. We couldn't afford to lose him, she declared to my aunt. He is so awfully humorous. His droll sayings and antics keep us in a perfect roar each night at dinner. He's such a perfect mimic. I turned away and strolled with Muriel, pleading an excuse to show her my uncle's beautiful grounds, not a whit less picturesque than those of the castle, and perhaps rather better kept. I only heard yesterday of your engagement, Miss Lithcourt, I remarked presently when we were alone. Allow me to offer my best congratulations. When you introduced me to Mr. Woodruff the other day I had no idea that he was to be your husband. She glanced at me quickly, and I saw in her dark eyes a look of suspicion. Then she flushed slightly, and laughing uneasily said, in a blank, hard voice, "'It's very good of you, Mr. Gregg, to wish me all sorts of such pleasant things.' "'And when is the happy event to take place?' "'The date is not exactly fixed.' early next year, I believe. And I thought she sighed. And you will probably spend a good deal of time yachting, I suggested, my eyes fixed upon her in order to watch the result of my pointed remark. But she controlled herself perfectly. I love the sea, she responded briefly, and her eyes were set straight before her. Mr. Woodruff has gone up to town, your mother says. Yes, he received a wire and had to leave immediately. 
It was an awful bore, for we had arranged to go for a picnic to Dundrennan Abbey yesterday. But he'll be back here again, won't he? I really don't know. It seems quite uncertain. I had a letter this morning which said he might have to go over to Hamburg on business instead of coming up to us again. There was disappointment in her voice, and yet at the same time I could not fail to recognize how the man to whom she was engaged had fled from Scotland because of my presence. How I had longed to ask her point-blank what she really knew of the yachtsman who was shrouded in so much mystery. Yet, by betraying any undue anxiety, I should certainly negative all my efforts to solve the puzzling enigma. Therefore I was compelled to remain content with asking ingeniously disguised questions and drawing my own conclusions from her answers. As we passed along those graveled walks it somehow became vividly impressed upon me that her marriage was being forced upon her by her parents. Her manner was that of one who was concealing some strange and terrible secret which she feared might be revealed. There was a distant look of unutterable terror in those dark eyes as though she existed in some constant and ever-present dread. Of course she told me nothing of her own feelings or affections, yet I recognized in both her words and her bearing a curious apathy, a want of the real enthusiasm of affection. Woodruff, much her senior, was her father's friend, and it therefore seemed to me more likely that Lythcourt was pressing a matrimonial alliance upon his daughter for some ulterior motive. In the mad hurry for place, power, and wealth men relentlessly sell their daughters in the matrimonial market, and ambitious mothers scheme and intrigue for their own aggrandizement at sacrifice of their daughter's happiness more often than the public ever dream. Tragedy is, alas, written upon the face of many a bride whose portrait appears in the fashion papers and whose toilet is so faithfully chronicled in the paragraph beneath. Indeed, the girl in society who is allowed her own free choice in the matter of a husband is, alas, nowadays the exception, for parents who want to get on up the social scale have found that pretty daughters are a marketable commodity, and many a man has been placed on his legs both financially and socially by his son-in-law. Hence the marriage of convenience is fast becoming common, while in the same ratio the divorce petitions are unfortunately on the increase. I read tragedy in the dark luminous eyes of Muriel Lythcourt. I knew that her young heart was overburdened by some secret sorrow or guilty knowledge that she would reveal to me if she dared. Her own words told me that she was perplexed, that she longed to confide and seek advice of someone, yet by reason of some hidden and untoward circumstances her lips were sealed. I tried to question her further regarding Woodruff, of what profession he followed, and of his past, but she evidently suspected me, for I had unfortunately mentioned the Lola. She wanted to speak to me in confidence, and yet she would reveal to me nothing, absolutely nothing. Martin Woodruff did not rejoin the house-party at Rannoch. Although I remained the guest of my uncle much longer than I intended, indeed right through the shooting season, in order to watch the Lythcourts, yet as far as we could judge they were extremely well-bred people and very hospitable. 
we exchanged a good many visits and dinners, and while my uncle several times invited Lythcourt and his friends to his shoot with alfresco luncheon, which the ladies joined, the tenant of Rannoch always invited us back in return. Thus I gained many opportunities of talking with Muriel, and of watching her closely. I had the reputation of being a confirmed bachelor, and on account of that it seemed that she was in no way averse to my companionship. She could handle a rook rifle as well as any woman, and was really a very fair shot. Therefore we often found ourselves alone tramping across the wide open moorland, or along those delightful glens of the Nithsdale, glorious in the autumn tints of their luxurious foliage. Her father, on the other hand, seemed to view me with considerable suspicion, and I could easily discern that I was only asked to Rannoch because it was impossible to invite my uncle without including myself. Lythcourt, who perhaps thought I was courting his daughter, was ever endeavoring to avoid me, and would never allow me to walk with him alone. Why, I wondered, did he fear me? Had Woodruff told him of our strange encounter in Leghorn? His pronounced antipathy towards me caused me to watch him surreptitiously, and more closely than perhaps I should otherwise have done. He was a man of gloomy mood, and often he would leave his guests and take walks alone, musing and brooding. On several occasions I followed him in secret, and found to my surprise that although he made long detours in various directions, yet he always arrived at the same spot at the same hour, five o'clock. The place where he halted was on the edge of a dark wood on the brow of a hill about three miles from Rannoch, a good place to get wood-pigeon as they came to roost. It was fully two miles across the hills from the high road to Monnevie, and from the break the gray wall where he was in the habit of sitting to rest and smoke there stretched the beautiful panorama of Lac Ur and the heather-clad hills beyond. Lythcourt never went direct to the place but always so timed his walks that he arrived just at five, and remained there smoking cigarettes until half-past, as though awaiting the arrival of some persons he expected. Once or twice his guests suggested shooting pigeons at sundown, but he always had some excuse for opposing the proposal, and thus the party, unsuspecting the reason, were kept away from that particular lonely spot. In my youth I had sat many a quiet hour there in the darkening gloom, and shot many a pigeon. Therefore I knew the wood well, and was able to watch the tenant of Rannoch from points where he least suspected the presence of another. Once when I was alone with Muriel I mentioned her father's capacity for walking alone, whereupon she said, Oh, yes, he was always fond of walking. He used to take me with him when we first came here but he always went so far that I refused to go any more. She never once mentioned Woodruff. I allowed her plenty of opportunity for doing so, chafing her about her forthcoming marriage in order that she might again refer to him, but never did his name pass her lips. I understood that he had gone abroad. That was all. Often when alone I reflected upon my curious adventure on that night when I met Olinto, and of my narrow escape from the hands of my unknown enemies. 
I wondered if that ingenious and dastardly attempt upon my life had really any connection with that strange incident at Leghorn. As day succeeded day my mind became filled by increasing suspicion. Mystery surrounded me on every hand. Indeed, by one curious fact alone it was increased a hundredfold. Late one afternoon, when I had been out shooting all day with the Rannoch party, I drove back to the castle in the Perth cart with three other men, and found the ladies assembled in the great hall with tea ready. A welcome log fire was blazing in the huge old grate, for in October it is chilly and damp in Scotland, and a fire is pleasant at evening. Muriel was seated upon the high-padded fender, like those one has at clubs, which always formed a cozy spot for the ladies, especially after dinner. When I entered she rose quickly and handed me my cup, exclaiming as she looked at me, "'Oh, Mr. Gregg, what a state you are in!' "'Yes, I was after snipe and slipped into a bog,' I laughed. "'But it was early this morning, and the mud is dried. "'Come with me and I'll get you a brush,' she urged and I followed her through the long corridors and upstairs to a small sitting-room, which was her own little sanctum, where she worked and read, a cosy little place with two queer old windows in the colossal wall, and a floor of polished oak and great black beams above. When the owner had occupied the house that room had been disused, but it had, I found, been now completely transformed and was a most tasteful little nest of luxury with its bright chintzes, its turkey rugs, and its cheerful fire on the old stone hearth. She laughed when I expressed admiration of her little den, and said, I believe it was the armory in the old days, but it makes quite a comfy little boudoir. I can lock myself in and be quite quiet when the party are too noisy, she added merrily. But as my eyes wandered around, they suddenly fell upon an object which caused me to start with profound wonder, a cabinet photograph in a frame of crimson leather. The picture was that of a young girl, a duplicate of the portrait I had found torn across and flung aside on board the Lola. The merry eyes laughed out at me as I stood staring at it in sheer bewilderment. "'What a pretty girl!' I exclaimed quickly, concealing my surprise. "'Who is she?' My companion was silent a moment, her dark eyes meeting mine with a strange look of inquiry. Yes, she laughed. Everyone admires her. She was a schoolfellow of mine. Elma Heath. Heath, I echoed. Where was she at school with you? At Chichester. Long ago? A little over two years. She's very beautiful, I declared, taking up the photograph and discovering that it bore the name of the same well-known photographer in New Bond Street as that I had found on the carpet of the Lola in the Mediterranean. Yes, she's really prettier than her photograph. It hardly does her justice. And where is she now? Why are you so very inquisitive, Mr. Gregg? laughed the handsome girl. Have you actually fallen in love with her from her picture? I'm hardly given to that kind of thing, Miss Leithcourt, I answered with mock severity. I don't think even my worst enemy could call me a flirt. Could she? No, I will give you your due, she declared. You never do flirt. That is why I like you. Thank you for your candor, Miss Leithcourt, I said. Only, she added, you seem smitten with Elma's charms. 
"'I think she's extremely pretty,' I remarked, with the photograph still in my hand. "'Do you ever see her now?' "'Never,' she replied. "'Since the day I left school we have never met. She was several years younger than myself, and I heard that a week after I left Chichester her people came and took her away. Where she is now I have no idea. Her people lived somewhere in Durham. Her father was a doctor.' Her reply disappointed me. Yet I had at least retained knowledge of the name of the original of the picture, and from the photographer I might perhaps discover her address, for to me it seemed that she was somehow intimately connected with those mysterious yachtsmen. What Muriel told me concerning her I did not doubt for a single instant, yet it was certainly more than a coincidence that a copy of the picture which had created such a deep impression upon me should be preserved in her own little boudoir as a souvenir of a devoted school-friend. Then you have heard absolutely nothing as to her present position or whereabouts, whether she is married, for instance? Ah! she cried mischievously, you betray yourself by your own words. You have fallen in love with her, I really believe, Mr. Gray. If she knew, she'd be most gratified. Or at least she ought to be. At which I smiled, preferring that she should adopt that theory in preference to any other. She spoke frankly, as a pure, honest girl would speak. She was not jealous, but she nevertheless resented, as women do resent such things, that I should fall in love with a friend's photograph. There was a mystery surrounding that torn picture. Of that I was absolutely certain. The remembrance of that memorable evening when I had dined on board the Lola arose vividly before me. Why had the girl's portrait been so ruthlessly destroyed, and the frame turned with its face to the wall? There was some reason, some distinct and serious motive in it. Had Muriel told me the truth, I wondered, or was she merely seeking to shield the suspected man who was her lover? Hour by hour the mystery surrounding the Lithcourts became more inscrutable, more intensely absorbing. I had searched a copy of the London Directory at the Station Hotel at Carlisle, and found that no house in Green Street was registered as occupied by the tenant of Rannoch, and further when I came to examine the list of guests at the castle I found that they were really persons unknown in society. They were merely of that class of witty, well-dressed parasites who always cling on to the wealthy and make believe that they are smart and of grand monde. Rannoch was an expensive place to keep up, with all that big retinue of servants and gamekeepers, and with those nightly dinners cooked by a French chef, yet Lythcourt seemed to possess a long pocket and smiled upon those parasites, officers of doubtful commission, and younger sprigs of the pseudo-aristocracy who surrounded him, while his wife, keen-eyed and of superb bearing, was punctilious concerning all points of etiquette, and at the same time indefatigable that her mixed set of guests should enjoy a really good time. But I was not the only person who could not make them out. My uncle was the first to open my eyes regarding the true character of certain of the men staying at Rannoch. I think, Gordon, that one or two of those fellows with Lythcourt are rank outsiders, he said confidentially to me one night, after we had had a hard day's shooting, and were playing a hundred up at billiards before retiring. 
one man who arrived yesterday I know too well. He was struck off the list at Boodle's three years ago for card-sharping. That thin-faced, fair-moustached man named Cadby. I suppose Lythcourt doesn't know it, or he wouldn't have him up here among respectable folk. And my uncle, chewing the end of his cigar, sniffed angrily, seeming half-inclined to give his friend a gentle hit that the name Cadby was placed beyond the pale of good society. "'Better not say anything about it,' I urged. "'It's Lythcourt's own affair, uncle, not ours.' "'Yes, but if a man sets up a position in the country he mustn't be allowed to ask us to meet such fellows. It's coming it a little too thick, Gordon. We men can stand the women of the party, but the men, well, I tell you candidly, I shan't accept his invites to shoot again.' "'No, no, uncle,' I protested. "'Probably it's owing to ignorance.' you'll be able a little later on to give him valuable tips. He's a good fellow, and only wants experience in Scotland to get along all right. Yes, but I don't like it, my boy, I don't like it. It isn't playing a fair game, declared the rigid old gentleman, coloring resentfully. I'm not going to return the invitation and ask that sharper Cadby to my house, and I tell you that plainly. Next day I shot with the Carmichaels of Crossburn, and about four o'clock, after a good day, took leave of the party in the Black Glen, and started off alone to walk home, a distance of about six miles. It was already growing dusk, and would be quite dark, I knew, before I reached my uncle's house. My most direct way was to follow the river for about two miles, and then strike straight across the large, dense wood, and afterwards over a wide moor full of treacherous bogs and pitfalls for the unwary. My gun over my shoulder, I had walked on for about three-quarters of an hour, and had nearly traversed the wood at that hour so dark that I had considerable difficulty in finding my way, when all of a sudden I fancied I distinguished voices. I halted. Yes, men were talking in low tones of confidence, and in that calm stillness of evening they appeared nearer to me than they actually were. I listened, trying to distinguish the words uttered, but could make out nothing. They were moving slowly together, in close vicinity to myself, for their feet stirred the dry leaves, and I could hear the boughs cracking as they forced their way through them. Of a sudden, while standing there not daring to breathe, lest I should betray my presence, a strange sound fell upon my eager ears. Next moment I realized that I was at that place where Lythcourt so persistently kept his disappointed tryst, having approached it from within the wood. The sound alarmed me, and yet it was neither an explosion of firearms nor a startling cry for help. One word reached me in the darkness, one single word of bitter and withering reproach. Heedless of the risk I ran, and the peril to which I exposed myself, I dashed forward with a resolve to penetrate the mystery, until I came to the gap in the rough stone wall where Lythcourt's habit was to halt each day at sundown. There, in the falling darkness, the sight that met my eyes at the spot held me rigid, appalled, stupefied. In that instant I realized the truth, a truth that was surely the strangest ever revealed to any man. End of chapter 4 Recording by Tom Weiss